Okay. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let me pray for us, if, if you'll just indulge me for a minute, and then we'll take a look at this, okay? Uh, Father, I pray in these next few moments as we take a look at this passage that for some of us is very familiar, and for others of us it's very foreign and weird sounding. I, I just pray that you'd help us, and that you'd give us um, uh, the ability to understand what this is about. Would you do that? Would you do it now? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so one of my favorite movies of all time, which is a little lame because it only came out like within the past five years, but it's still amazing. The Dark Knight. Uh, great movie. Um, and it's, the thing I like about it is that it's exploring anthropology, you know, the doctrine of man. It's, it's, it's trying to figure out, it's all about what is humanity's nature, and so right from the very beginning of the, of the movie, you remember when the Joker comes in, he's robbing that bank, and uh, there's that employee that's like dying on the ground yelling, and he yells out to the Joker, what do you believe in? It's really, I mean, it's really interesting that that question gets posed right at the beginning of the movie, and as the movie unfolds, you find out what the Joker believes in. And so basically his whole belief system, his whole worldview about human nature is that moral codes are shams. Deep down, everybody is just as twisted and as self-interested as he is. They just kind of live in these moral codes. And so it's his whole game to expose that these moral codes are, are foolish. And so what does he do? He puts people in these situations, if you remember the movie, where basically they're in a moral dilemma where they have to either kill or be killed. To basically expose when it's really on the line, when it really counts, your whole moral code, your whole moral system is a joke. It doesn't really count. Deep down, everybody is just as messed up and selfish and twisted and evil as he is. You remember that line when he's getting interviewed by Batman, where he says, see, I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve. It's a great line. He's basically saying, y'all are just as twisted and evil as I am. I'm just the only one willing to admit it. Now, here's why I'm talking about this. Because as chilling and as odd as it may seem, the Bible's going to sound a lot like the Joker tonight. <laughs> but I want you to bear, bear with me and bear with this passage, because in the, even though it's, there's a lot of scary, weird stuff in this passage, there is really incredibly good news in the middle of it, too. 
So bear with me. So what I want to do is, is I want you to see that as Paul begins to get going in this chapter, he begins painting two different pictures for us. The picture of sin and the picture of grace. So what I want to do is I just want to look at both of these pictures, both of these portraits, and take a better, you know, get a better look at it. Okay? So here's the first one. Paul begins painting for us this portrait of sin. And what he does is he strings together three images to try and focus us in on what he's getting at. And so I just want to look at each of these images. The first one is the image of death. You saw it right there in verse 1, so just you know, reference it back. It says in verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Paul kicks off this passage with this image of saying, The life lived apart from God is death. Okay, what does that mean? Well, I think it means a few things. One is, uh, I think that it means that the life lived apart from God feels as empty as death. I mean, it's kind of the image of the living dead of like, you know, I think this is, you know, makes me think of Zombieland or Left for Dead or something where, you, where somebody is literally decaying and decomposing on the inside, although on the outside they look very human. But on the inside they are rotting and decomposing. I think that's one of the first things that it means. But I think it also means that God has the same reaction to those who are outside of his grace, the same sort of reaction that we would have when we see a rotting carcass, a dead carcass. You know, like when you're driving down the road and you see fresh roadkill of like a dog or a deer or something, you just, you kind of cringe for a second. And I think that's what this is suggesting, is that God has that same sort of revolting cringe towards those that he sees that are living outside of his grace. Great way to start it off, Paul. First image, death. Here's the second one, a slave. Here's where I get this. It's in, in, in verse 2 and 3. It says uh, that you are dead in your transgressions and sins, verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And then bounce down to verse 3. It says, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. That language of following is the language of slavery. Like we, we are enchained, shackled, following, can't help but following certain things. And he lists three different things that we're slaves to, but I just want to focus on one of them tonight. It's when he says the ways of this world. You see it right there in uh, verse 2, you, you uh, lived when you followed the ways of this world. That's basically just talking about the whole social system, a whole value structure that is opposed to the kingdom of God, that is opposed to God himself. And this is just the cultural air that you breathe, is this value system. So I just want to throw out a couple of examples of this anti-Christian value system that I'm talking about here. Here's here's one, for example. When somebody hurts you, you don't forgive them. You retaliate or just uh, give them the silent treatment or gossip about them. I think that's a value of the ways of this world. Here's another one. Sex in my dating relationship is uncritically expected. Really, it's just some form of sexuality. It's just assumed that that's free reign, right? Here's another one. Porn and masturbation are normal habits to have. I think that's just sort of assumed that you're free to do that. It's a normal thing to do. You get ahead in the world by taking. Here's one, last one. You only hang out with those people who are cool and attractive. This is, this is the value system of the cultural, this is just the world that you live in. And as a result, that value system has created oppression 
and poverty and racial discrimination and the marginalization and the objectifying of women, just hunger, all sorts of problems that you see in the world. And what this is saying is because you and I were slaves and are slaves to this value structure, we helped cause all of this stuff that we see around us. We're behind all of that mess. That's what this is saying. So that's the first image is death. Second image is slave. And then the third image that Paul brings is the image of being condemned. You see it in verse 3. At the, very, the, the last sentence in verse 3, it says, Like the rest, meaning like the rest of mankind, we were by nature objects of wrath. Paul is very soberly saying here, because we are so saturated with this disease of sin and rebellion, that we have no hope of coming in front of God's presence and not expecting wrath and judgment. And how can, you, how can we approach a just and a holy God as guilty as we actually are? But I don't think that I have to convince you that you're guilty because you feel guilty. I mean, we are the most therapeutic, medicated generation in the history of Western civilization. We know that we feel guilty, right? The movie Inception. I'm not going to ruin it. Great movie. If you haven't seen it, shame on you. But um, one of the main themes that's running through this storyline is the Leonardo DiCaprio character is, can't outrun his guilt. You know, it's interesting. He has all this shame and all this regret from these bad decisions that he made. And they literally, this guilt is literally following him into his dreams and into his subconscious. And my guess is for a lot of you, your guilt follows you into those places as well. When you lay down at night and you finally stop, and the busyness doesn't keep all of that stuff at bay, but it actually begins to bubble back up, and it keeps you up. The guilt follows you into those places, maybe even into the places of your own dreams. So you combine all three of these images together, dead and slave and uh, condemned, and where does that leave us? It leaves us with this conclusion. That your biggest problem and my biggest problem is not our circumstances, it's not our parents, it's not society, it's not our genetics. Your biggest problem is you, and my biggest problem is me. That's what this is saying. Outside of his grace, God looks at us and he sees a rotting, decomposing, nauseating, offensive, guilty criminal. If this doesn't offend you, you're not paying attention. Because it should, because it, it offends me. But this is what this is saying. And I know what you're thinking. Okay, why in the world did I come to RUF this night? <laughs> Maybe I'll just slip through the side door and get out from under all of this. Why are we talking about this and just getting depressed? Here's why we're talking about this. Because the gospel of Jesus will not be good news to you. Unless you look at this portrait, this horrific, awful portrait, and it is awful, and say, yeah, that is me. Jesus will make no sense to you, and the Bible will make no sense to you and make you angry unless you're willing to make that step. For those of you in the room who don't consider yourselves Christians, up until now, your life, which has ultimately been centered on you, 
feels empty. It feels dead, doesn't it? I mean, the Bible explains that it feels, it, it explains why you feel like an addict in the ways that you do. I know because I've talked with you and I've heard your hearts and I've heard your stories. It feels like this and it captures what you feel and what you're experiencing. Are you willing to admit that you are this messed up or is your pride preventing you from saying, yeah, this is me? For the Christians in the room, the reason that you don't have any joy whatsoever in your life and you only feel guilt and insecurity all of the time is because you don't know what to be joyful about. You don't. Christian joy doesn't make sense to you. And I promise you that the joy that the gospel holds out to you It runs so much deeper than the emotional rush that you experience at a worship concert. It goes so much deeper than that. Regardless of where you are spiritually right now, if you are not willing to look at this picture, as awful as it is, and say, yeah, that is me, that is my story, none of this stuff will make sense to you, and you will have to choose between burning out completely or just growing bitter and cynical. Those are your options. And I'll explain to you here in a minute what what I mean by that. If you are not willing to look at this picture and say, yeah, that is me. But you have to see, Paul doesn't stop here. It's not like he puts a period at the end of that sentence and says, all right, let's go home. He begins now to paint a different picture, a different portrait, the portrait of grace. And you have to hear this as well. So this is in verse 4 through 9. And what I want you to do is is we now focus in on this second portrait. I want you to see two things. One, what God has done. And secondly, why he has done it, okay? So let's just first look at what God has done. Uh, Let me read verse uh, 4 through 5 again. It says, But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Dead people don't just decide to come back to life. It takes God's sovereign initiating action to come and make us alive. I mean, God is the, the, the subject of that sentence. Outside of God, there is no hope of resurrection, of being brought into life again. I know for some of you, uh, you would probably describe your Christian experience as something like this. Or maybe you've heard people describe their Christian experience as something like this, where they, when they get to understand God for the first time, it feels like they're a new person. Their life begins to change so radically that it really does feel like, okay, I'm alive now. Before, I don't know what you would consider that death maybe, but now I am finally alive This is the whole image, the whole description of um, what the Bible uses of that metaphor of being born again. You're actually moving into life again. But the passage goes on. God doesn't just make us alive out of our death and our decay. He does three other things. In verse 5 through 6, I want you to pay attention to these verbs, these three verbs that God does. Verse 5, God made us alive with Christ. Verse 6, God raised us up with Christ. Verse 6, again, God seated us with him. You see those three uh, verbs of being made alive, of being raised, of being seated with Christ? Track with me for a second, but this is going back to the historical events of Jesus' work. I mean, remember Jesus was died and buried in a tomb. He was raised to life, is the claim of the Bible. He ascended into heaven and is seated now at God's right hand. This is referring to the historical actions and the events around Jesus' life. But notice, this isn't talking about Jesus. This is talking about you. Saying, if you believe in Jesus, you were made alive in him. You were raised with him. You were seated with him. What What does that mean? This is referring to what theologians have called our union with Christ. 
Meaning that God, the Holy Spirit, in a mysterious way, actually unites you to the person and to the work of Jesus. So that now what could ever be said about Jesus is true of you. Jesus was killed, so are you. Jesus was raised to new life, and so are you. Let me try and break this down from a different angle. When God looks upon God the Son, when God the Father looks upon his son Jesus, he has nothing but love and delight and affection for his son. But of course, when he looks at people outside of his grace, he sees that nauseating, guilty criminal. But what Jesus did is said, okay, I know that these people are objects of his wrath, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to step in and on the cross become an object of wrath. I will receive that look of displeasure so that those who fall on my mercy by faith will have the gaze and the look of God that is filled with love and delight and affection. Jesus is our substitute. He trades our place. He takes the look of displeasure so that we can receive the look of God's affection and favor. That is what God has done. But that's not the shocking thing. The the, the shocking thing is why God has done it. And here's the second thing I want you to see. Not just what he has done, but why he has done it. Look at the passage again with me. Verse 4. It says, But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, verse 5, it is by grace you have been saved. Verse 7, The incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness. Verse 8 and 9, For it is by grace. Grace, you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. God makes us alive, liberates us from slavery, pardons our guilt, not because he had to. He was not obligated to do any of that. Like that's God's job, just to forgive or something. No, this passage destroys that idea. It says God doesn't owe you anything. In fact, you forfeited everything. That's what grace is, is undeserved favor. You didn't deserve this. You gave everything away. And God comes to you in his kindness and in his mercy and says, I know you forfeited everything and I owe you nothing, but I'm going to give you everything instead. That's what this is saying. It is, it is a gift. When it says that you are not saved by your works, that's basically saying God doesn't owe you anything based off of who you are or what you have done. He owes you nothing. Let me try and make this practical. God doesn't care. God is not interested or God is not impressed with your church attendance. God is not impressed uh, that you are nice and that that mission trip was awesome. God is not impressed that you may still be a virgin or that you are the one of the two people in here that's not addicted to pornography. God's not impressed that you have a 4.0. I mean, do you think God honestly looks at your spiritual report card and says, wow, okay, I'm going to let you into my club and just totally disregard all of my, you know, standing of holiness and justice. No, the cross would be pointless if that was the case. But what this is saying, that if you really trust in Jesus for your salvation, if salvation really is free and it is by grace alone, that means that we have to now not only repent of our sin and our bad works, we have to repent of the ways that we trust in our good works. Here's what I mean by that. For me personally, I know it is super easy to get into this mindset to think God really likes me based off of what I do. Meaning, uh, if I'm having a quiet time every day, if I've gone to church this week, if I'm doing this and this and this, 
then God really likes me. And what am, I, what am I doing or what are you doing in those moments? We are saying we're trusting in our own stuff. We are in that moment our own Savior. And as long as we are our own Savior in that moment, we don't need Jesus as our Savior. So to trust in the gospel means to not only repent of our bad works, but to repent of, our, of the way that we trust in our good works. One of my um, favorite musicians is Sufjan Stevens. And... Um, uh, he has this unbelievable song from his, uh, I guess a, a couple of albums ago now, uh, off of his Illinois record called um, John Wayne Gacy Jr. If you've heard the song, uh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable, it's beautiful, it's shocking. But the story is, is he, he tells a story in the song about a historical figure that was a serial killer around the Chicago area in the 1970s named John Wayne Gacy Jr. And what this guy would do is he would dress up like a clown he would lure little boys into his uh, apartment. He would rape them and then kill them and then s- store their bodies underneath the crawl space. I mean, it's just like the most shocking uh, thing to, to listen to. In fact, you can't listen to it and not tear up or at least have your stomach turn because it's so graphic and, and awful. But at the end of the song, Sufjan Stevens uh, transitions from being the narrator of telling the story to actually begin speaking in his own voice. And here are the last two lines of the song. And in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. He's saying, when I'm on my best behavior, not my worst. I'm just like this pedophilic serial killer. The shock that that makes you feel is the point, I think. To be shocked out of this delusion that we're really not all that bad or you know, we just make a few mistakes here and there, but to say, on my best behavior, not my worst, I'm no different from this guy. Not in the sense that my sins are as heinous, but in, this, but in the sense that, apart from Jesus, I'm no better. It's shocking. But the gospel is, not just that we are this graphically messed up underneath, but that God still graciously accepts us because of what Jesus has done. Tim Keller, who's one of my favorite pastors and preachers in the world, summarizes the gospel this way. And I'm going to say it, and you should memorize this and pound it into your head because this is a great way to summarize it. He says, the gospel is this. The gospel is the good news that you are more sinful and wicked than you have ever imagined. And yet more loved and accepted than you could ever dare dream. At the same time, because of the work of Jesus. You see what's going on here? He's just putting the two two portraits together and saying, you are more sinful than you thought you were. You're way more accepted and loved than you could ever dream that you are. And my guess is, all of the problems in your life, or at least a ton of problems in your life, stem from a failure to put these two things together. To overlay the portrait of sin and the portrait of grace together and say, that is me, that is my story. If you're unwilling to do that, it just opens up Pandora's box for all kinds of problems in your life. And so what I want to do, just for the rest of our time, if you'll, if you'll indulge me, is just explore just a couple of problem areas that I see in your life and you can see in my life that flow from a failure to recognize and to believe that, yeah, I'm this messed up and I am this treasured by Jesus. Okay? So just give me a few minutes and we'll, I just want to work through a couple of problems. First, the problem with assurance. What I mean by assurance is I just mean the secure confidence that you can have that you are in Jesus, that you are saved, that God actually loves you. The problem of assurance. Because my guess is for some of you, you came into this Christian thing with the idea that 
sin is just sort of uh, moral lapses. It's just, you know, to err is human. Everybody sort of messes up here and there. And so what you did is you came into this Christian thing to get your life back together. You know, Jesus kind of comes alongside of you and helps clean up a few of your problem areas. And uh, what you began to discover as you did that is that there were certain things in your life that were hard to give up. In fact, there were certain things in your life that you did not want to give up. And so as a result, this left you in one of two places, burnout or bitterness. Burnout, where some of you just simply pitched Christianity altogether. You know, you came to college, you started hanging out with some friends, and you're like, wow, none of them feel guilty about what they're doing, so why should I? And so you just went down that path of the irreligious path of none of this matters, why feel guilty, and just hugged Christianity, just burn out altogether, irreligiously. But some of you went down the religious path. In fact, you're still on the religious path. In fact, maybe the, even the reason that you're here tonight is because coming to RUF is just one more step in your religious program. Yeah, I've been to five Bible studies this week. You know, you, you read the Bible rigorously, you go to church, you're, you're very religiously busy, and yet underneath it all, there is this restless insecurity where you're thinking and feeling, what can I do to make sure that God likes me and stays liking me? What do I do to get rid of all this guilt? And as a result, you're just on this hamster wheel running for your life. And it is exhausting, and it is leaving you angry and bitter. But when you see both of these paths flow from a problem to recognize, one, we are way more messed up than we thought we were, and we are way more accepted and loved than we could have ever imagined. It's the problem with assurance. Here's here's the second problem. Problem with hiding just hiding from people, hiding your sin. This is the reason why you don't talk about your struggles or talk about your issues, where you feel like you have to tiptoe around your friends because you can't let them know who you really are or what you really do. Because you have bought into this anti-gospel lie that Christianity is all about making you look good instead of realizing the fact that it's about you being a sinner saved by Jesus and therefore making Jesus look good. It's an anti-Christian lie. Or some of you are afraid that if you actually expose your failures and your struggles and your addictions, that you're going to ruin your witness. And you don't realize the fact that by parading and pretending that you don't need Jesus to the world, you've already ruined your witness. Because it's a lie. You're living dishonestly. Or the fact that you only talk about your struggles in the past tense. And it's just what I used to struggle with. And you don't ever talk about what you're struggling with right now. You're hiding. And this game of hiding your sin is exhausting. And it will lead you in one of two places. Burnout or bitterness. Burnout. Where you just get eventually so tired of pretending and making up the lie that you're more put together than you really are. Where you're just like, forget this and you just punt Christianity altogether. Just burnout. Or bitterness where you have to guard and defend your image so rigorously that when anybody begins poking around in areas that you don't want them to, you get rude and touchy and sensitive and defensive because nobody can expose this you know, sham that you've created for yourself. But when you, when you get the gospel that you are way more sinful than you thought you were and more treasured, this gives you the freedom to start being honest again and quit this game of hiding and religious pretense Here's the third problem, and I'll I'll just close out with this one. The problem with spiritual boredom, or maybe just another way to talk about it, is a problem with a lack of joy, a lack of real joy in who God is and what he has done. Because I know some of you are here tonight, 
doing the Christian thing, and deep down in your gut, you just feel numb. But the fact that you have to uh, pretend, the fact that you have to pretend like you're enthusiastic and on fire for Jesus, you you put up the the show. And what this does is this, this leads you into one of two directions, burnout or bitterness. Burnout. Where the lack of joy that you're experiencing in Jesus just sends you into the arms of other saviors that promise you more joy. So you just scrap the whole Christianity thing altogether and say, well, partying is a lot more fun. Video games are a lot more fun. Sex is a lot more fun. Forget Christianity. Burnout. Or bitterness. Where some of you are right here tonight, angry, <laughs> angry at me, angry at this passage, while you're smiling on the outside, Because you know that this is calling you something that you don't want to admit about yourself. But friends, when you begin to get the gospel, joy is awakened. Let me put it this way. Uh, There is a direct proportion to the amount of joy that you will experience to the size of your sin that you see redeemed. Let me say it again. There, There is a direct proportion to the joy that you will experience to the size of your sin that you see redeemed. Let me illustrate it this way and I'll close it. Close it out. If I were to come to you and say, hey, I just paid off one of your bills, you wouldn't know really how to respond to me unless you knew which bill that was, right? I mean, if, if, uh, if I told you, yeah, I just paid off uh, your 50 cent uh, library fine from the overdue book at the, at the library, you'd be like, wow, thank you, Matt, that was nice of you. Um, didn't know you knew about my library book history, but appreciate that. You, you would have a 50 cent degree of joy in response to that debt being paid, right? But what if I came to you and I said, uh, I've paid off the rest of your college tuition and uh, your school loans, and I've taken care of your house note for the, the time of your you know, college experience, and I paid off all your credit card debt. My guess is you'd have a very different reaction, right? <laughs> the amount of joy that you experience is proportional to the size of the debt that is paid. And so for some of you, you come into this room and think, that your sin is about worth this much, and therefore Jesus comes along, pays off this $5 tab, and you, don't want, and you wonder why you don't have any joy in your life. The Bible is saying the debt is so much more enormous than you ever thought it was. And the grace of God is so much more enormous than you could have ever even comprehended it is. Friends, when you get this in your heart and are willing to look at these two pictures and say, that is me, that is my story... The problem with assurance melts away because you know no matter how much you struggle, no matter how messed up you are, Jesus has you. This eliminates the problem with hiding because you know now you have the freedom to come out and be honest and authentic and real about your struggles because it doesn't matter what people think because Jesus is the only one that really matters. And he says, you are forgiven and loved and treasured. This is the problem. This dissolves the problem of joy where you actually sing the words amazing grace and it means something instead of just boring, rote words. But the question is, do you believe it? Do you believe the gospel? I don't care if you're a Christian or not. The invitation of this passage is to believe it, maybe for the first time and maybe for the thousandth time. We have a great need for a savior And we have a great Savior for our need. Hallelujah. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you will make the good news of the gospel as messed up and as sick and as sinful and as addicted as we are, and yet as loved and as treasured because of Jesus. I pray that that would mean something 
deep in our hearts, and that would change us from the inside out. Would you do that? Would you do that in my heart, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.